Amen. Hey, well, thank you, Greg. Uh, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. Thank you for being with us. If you're joining us on Facebook Live, thank you for doing that as well. And if you're listening to this online later on our podcast, thank you for doing that too. Uh, I am missing a group of people who often sit behind me. Uh, so our youth group this morning, about 40 students are away on a retreat this weekend. And so we just want to continue to, to pray for them as they re- return, recover, and our youth leaders as they recover from this event as well. So we're looking forward to that. Um, but speaking of kids, so this year, this Christmas time, we got our kids some special gifts, okay? I don't know if you know that Amazon is practically giving away um, like little Alexa dots now. I mean, they cost you know, as much as a banana right now. I don't even know what it is. They, they actually came with something that I needed to buy anyway. And I'm like, well, I guess I'll invite the NSA and CIA into my home and allow them to listen to whatever they want because Siri has been listening for a long time anyway. So let's add another person. Maybe combined, they can actually give me some wisdom. So we have a little Alexa dots around our house now, which has been kind of interesting. I don't know if I like it or I hate it yet, to be honest, but here's what I do know that I do like is that I can now walk into my kids' rooms and I can say, Alexa, play funky music. And she does. And if you've never done that or don't have an Alexa, you should try that and just see what happens. And the kids, of course, absolutely love when I do that. And some version of disco, hip-hop, weird thing starts playing on the Alexa. And then I also learned from my son that you can make the experience better by then adding the command, Alexa, max volume. Now, how many of you think in that moment that I'm hurting my children? Right? No. No, I got no votes on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. No. None. I didn't even, I don't see that hand. I don't see that hand. And here's my, here's, so here's the question that I want to talk about this morning in this series on big questions. This is the question. Why can't I live like I want to as long as I'm not hurting anybody else? And why can't I do that? Why can't I live like I want to as long as I am not hurting anyone else? And if you have lived at all in this life, you have heard that question before, and that is a, it is a primary ethical lens that people live through, and I want to talk about it this morning in this series, Big Questions That Shape Your World. Now, I don't know if you know this, but this question actually in this ethical principle, it's actually called the harm principle, and it comes, believe it or not, from England in the 1800s. There was a gentleman, I need to make sure I get his name right, but John Stuart Mills, Um, He actually wrote this in 1859. He wrote a little treatise called On Liberty. And he was afraid that the government was getting too powerful. He was a philosopher, a thinker. And so he wrote this in 1859. Here's what he said. He said, the only purpose, the only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others. John Stuart Mills. The only purpose reason, he would say, that would give the government good reason to exercise their control over you as a civilized member of their society is if you are about to rob a bank, to hurt somebody else, whatever it is, but to harm somebody. This is the origin of what we call now the harm principle of this ethic and this question. Why can't I live like I want to as long as I'm not hurting anyone else? If you know anyone who rides a motorcycle and doesn't wear a helmet, they're asking and answering the same question. 
If you know anyone who's struggled to transition from the no seatbelt rule of years past to everyone must buckle in and strap a seatbelt, they're asking the same question. If you know anyone who is dealing with transgender issues or other things related to sexuality, they're asking the same question. So in fact, in this, this week, as we were talking about this in our home, uh, my daughter Megan and I, who was the only one here who raised her hand, by the way, on the earlier question about my Alexa funky music max volume situation, as we were talking about this, she was talking about some of the things that she experienced in her world now. So I said, you know what, Megan, why don't you join me on Sunday morning? She said, I would love to. <laughs> but Megan, she did say she's willing to. So Megan, why don't you come on up? I'm going to invite you into my home for a minute. I mean, this is not where I live, but we had a good conversation here this week. Thank you for being willing to come up here. This is my daughter, Megan. Hi. <laughs> Some people say that we look alike. I'm not sure about that. In fact, yeah. Go for it. <laughs> Facebook sometimes draws a box around her face and tags me and says, I think you've been tagged on Facebook. To which I say, I'm really glad you guys think I look like a 40-year-old bald man. <laughs> no offense. Thanks for coming up here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. It's revenge for your Alexa tricks. <laughs> So we had a conversation, and we're talking about this idea, um, because this shows up in your life, I think, in the lives of, I think, many young adults and, and, and all that. So I, rather than me trying to say, here's how I think this shows up, I just kind of want to invite you a little bit to say, okay, where does this idea or this principle, how have you seen this work in your life of people that you've you know, grown up with, people you've hung out with, the idea of, you know, why can't I do what I want, you know, as long as it's not hurting anybody? Yeah, um, I think this is a really relevant question, especially for people in my generation. Um, I've seen it in my friends. I've seen it in kids that I've grown up with um, in our communities, especially in my generation. I think especially around issues like um, abortion or uh, sexual preferences, gay rights, that kind of thing. I think that a lot of the conversation around this with people that I've grown up with has been if we as maybe non-Christians or people that have a certain opinion on those kind of things, as if we are not judging you as Christians and if we don't care what your opinion is, why do you need to have an opinion on like our beliefs? So if, if we're staying out of your life and we're not hurting you, there's no reason that you need to put your opinions on our lives and like judge or have an opinion on what we're doing. Right. No, that's really good. So you're saying that you've seen people that you've talked with, you know, relative to if I want to have an abortion, why can't I do that as long as it's not hurting anyone else? If I want to choose my own sexual lifestyle, why can't I do that as long as it's not hurting anyone else? But then I also heard you say um, you've felt kickback or feedback from people saying, well, why do Christians judge us if we're not judging them on this? Why can't they just leave us alone? Is that, yeah. is that fair? Yeah, I think... I think as I've grown up, um, that's been a very, I'm sure it has been for other people my age, other people in our generation, and not just my generation. Um, this is a thing in our society right now. So yeah, I've seen that a lot. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Thank you very much. Can we thank you, Megan, for coming up here? Thank you very much. I really appreciate you doing that. But th so this is the point. If, if I could invite each of you up here, you could share some of your story. And this is what our next generation is dealing with. And I, I wish the youth group were here for part of this this morning, too, because I think it's very relevant for what they're dealing with and what they're growing up with. The good news is it'll be on our Facebook live feed on 
Facebook for a little while. So if you're a parent and want them to hear that conversation, here we go, um, you'll know where to find it. But in this series, we've been trying to deal with these questions that actually shape our world. And we recognize that, that both a secular world and a Christian world try to address the big questions that shape our world, and that we just do it differently. And the question is simply, which is the most robust and reasonable way to answer some of these really big questions? And so we talked about how both secularism and Christianity are both belief systems built on a combination of both evidence and faith. And the question is, which is the most reasonable way to answer this question? And so I want to talk this morning about what is a reasonable way to answer this question, um, both from a secular and then also a a Christian perspective, because I think it's very applicable to where we are. Um, Particularly, as Megan and I were talking about this this week, you know, how do you talk to people who work with you, who go to school with you, who are your peers or who are the next generation coming up about these issues? When you sit across the table and you hear this feedback from people, how, do you, how does one react? How, how do you even do that? So to begin, what I want to do is I want to talk about this principle and kind of what is behind it uh, in a second. But I want to talk first about some questions about how we see this issue. Of why can't I live like I want to as long as I'm not hurting anybody else? And this is a primary way that is a secular worldview of, of of seeing how I can live ethically and then honoring you, and I like that it's deferential to you. Like it's saying, I want to come underneath you and support you. I don't want to hurt you. I want to live like I want to, but I just don't want to hurt you. And it sounds actually pretty, pretty good. But there's some questions we have to ask around it. The first one is this. Like the difficult part is that hurt is hard to define, right? I mean, that's the low-hanging fruit on this. How do you define hurt? How do you even define hurt in, let's say, a no-fault divorce, if you will, when two consenting adults decide to divorce? Is there hurt in there or not? Is there relational hurt, emotional hurt? Spiritual hurt? Physical hurt? I don't know. How does one even define hurt? You know, I ran across um, a friend here this week, and they said, you know, I'd like to talk with you more, Tim, because there's, as I said, there's suicide in my family. They said, my grandfather committed suicide, uh, my father committed suicide, and I wake up with anxiety almost every day, afraid that at some point my brain is going to flip. What if I'm the next one to do that? So when grandfather commits suicide, (laughs) does that hurt? anyone else? How does one even define what hurt is? And the second leads into this, that story leads right into this. We cannot predict the future of hurt. The decisions that you make today, that grandpa made in that situation, there's no way he could predict the future, that there will be future hurt that will go on for the next generation. If you have ever had any regrets, if you ever had any regrets at all, you know this is true. The things that I did when I was a teenager, I look back on, and I don't look back on all of them with fondness. I look back on some of them with regret and think, I wish I wouldn't have made that choice, and that one, and that one. And I can't predict the future of hurt. Neither can you. Speak to the abortion issue. I know people, and I'm sure you do as well, some people who got an abortion earlier in life, who at the time it just seemed like the, the urgent or the right or the only thing that they could do. And while they didn't love it, they didn't necessarily hate it either, but now are struggling with a clinical depression around shame and hurt and pain around what they're actually realizing happened. You can't predict the future of hurt, and that's the problem, that if I'm going to make a decision, say, this decision I'm making, but I'm not going to hurt anybody else, (laughs) the only way to have surety that that's true is that you can predict the future of where this hurt will travel in the future, and we simply can't do that. The third reality is this, that we are deeply interdependent people. We are connected in a network of ways that underneath the surface that sometimes we simply don't see. I'm dependent upon you, and you're dependent upon me. I can't name the amount of people I've been dependent upon even this morning, even in the 10 minutes that I've been talking to you. I didn't knit my shirt, right? Someone did that for me. 
I, mean, I didn't build this little platform I'm standing on. Someone did that for me. I didn't build this building. Someone did that for us. This little clicker I have, I didn't create. I wouldn't know how to recreate that. This technology I made this presentation on is not mine that I created. The lights in here are not mine that I invented. I mean, the, just the physical world around us, I'm dependent and you're dependent. We are dependent. We're codependent upon people. We're deeply interdependent for mental health, for um, encouragement for relational support for physical world we are deeply interconnected and so underneath it when one says I'm gonna make a decision now and this won't hurt anyone else the only way that you can say that is going to be true is if you can define hurt extremely clearly secondarily that you can say I know where the future of this is going and thirdly that you can track down all of the ways in which that decision is going to impact all the people around you and it is a difficult thing to do, if not impossible, which is why I look at that and say, I'm not sure that this is the most reasonable ethic to have. But I have to ask this question. Why is it that we want this to be true? Why is it that we want this idea to be true? Why do we want to have something that we can hold to that says, I'm going to be able to live this way as long as I don't hurt anybody? Why do people want it to be true at all? To me, the answer is very simple. Behind it is this. Behind this question is this, that we want freedom. We want freedom. I want to be free to live. And in North America in particular, I'm going to argue this, that, that freedom is the animating ideal of our culture. That freedom in North America in particular is the animating ideal for our culture. That everything that we value rotates and, and goes around this big concept of freedom. It's in the national anthem, for goodness sakes. We're the land of the free, right in the home of the brave. That we want freedom that intrinsically as people, I don't want to be put under your authority. You don't want to be put under my authority. This is what um, Mills wrote about in 1850. He doesn't want to be put under the authority of the British government. Therefore, here's a way that I can have freedom but not hurt you in the process. And that is a simple ethical principle. I want freedom, but I don't want to hurt you. Then I can do whatever in the world that I want to do. Underneath the question is a drive and a desire for freedom. I want to express myself sexually freely. I want to be able to, to deal with the impact of um, getting pregnant in my own way. And if it doesn't hurt you, leave me alone. I want to be able to make my choices and be free to do what I want to do. And freedom is really a great thing. Freedom has helped us advance in so many ways as a culture, make so many great strides relative to um, minorities and some struggles we've had along the freedom. Moving people toward uh, equity and freedom is a good thing. But freedom, freedom is also a, a bad thing. If you think and if I think that freedom means unfettered or like uncontrolled freedom, where there's no limits on what I do, Here's what I mean by that. Freedom is always conflicting, isn't it? Like, uh, I'm going to pick on Megan again since she was up here. I'm not picking on you. But Megan was a part of a soccer team this year at Lancaster Bible College. And one of the rules that they had was no dessert for whatever, three months or whatever it was of that season, something like that. Right? Is that about two months? Three months? Three months? So isn't that terrible? It's a terrible idea. So they decided this is, you know, this is the way that the, the team culture was. And so, so as I asked that question like are you are you free the only way that you're free to participate in the culture of that team and be part of the in group is if you submit yourself to something that will constrain your freedom you see what i'm saying like i i can't be a part of the soccer team and eat dessert at the same time i have to choose which constraint i want to put myself under and that's the way all of our lives work i can't be in the in crowd and do something else at the same time I, I can't lose weight and eat all that I want at the same time. Just, it's not, 
not going to work. I can't drive only after company profit and care about all my employees' emotional well-being at the same time. Those two are conflicting at times, and sometimes I make decisions one or the other. We always put ourselves under some constraints. That is the nature of freedom. And so the question is, which are the best constraints to put yourself under? That is the question that I want to talk about here this morning. And that is where, you know, I... I I want to make one more comment and then talk about how Christians pursue this. Um, Unfettered freedom. Our society, by the way, depends on people who are willing to volunteer to be unselfish. Um, Greatest example of that, Greg, what you just had up here with Adrian and um, Suzanne, talking about moms. Moms. Our society depends on people like moms who are willing to volunteer to wake up in the middle of the night to change dirty diapers, and to get projectile vomited on over and over and over again. Depends on that. That's unselfish behavior. Can you imagine when that doesn't happen? And yes, you can. Because sometimes it doesn't happen. Because sometimes moms aren't like that, and they don't care. And we don't like to talk about that part of it. We know it exists. And when that happens, you know what happens too. The government gets involved. When people decide that I can have unfettered freedom, that I can be free to do whatever I want, our society, this is not even a Christian thing, it's just a thing, our society falls apart. Our society is dependent upon people like our volunteer firefighters who say, I'm willing to give up my freedom to serve you. Can you imagine if we didn't have people who are willing to do that? Our society, regardless of faith, is dependent upon people to to commit to unselfish behavior. If we don't do that, the only solution is bigger government, which none of us really want. Now, with that being said, I'm going to say this, that I think that there's actually no greater freedom, no greater feeling of freedom than this, than being loved well. If you're pursuing freedom and you want true freedom, what I believe you've actually experienced and what I've actually experienced is the greatest freedom that you have ever felt, I would argue, is in a love relationship with somebody whether it's a parent to a child or a grandparent that you've experienced or in a dating or a marriage relationship or a sibling or some good friend in school, something like that, I would argue that the greatest freedom you have ever experienced is the freedom of being loved well. Now, here's the irony of love. As soon as you love somebody, you're putting yourself under their constraints, aren't you? In other words, if I try to love my wife but say, I'm going to do whatever I want to... (laughs) You can imagine how well that will work. What an irony it is that to find the greatest freedom that I want, I must come under the service of somebody else. And that is the irony of love, that I must serve you and you must serve me. And in that mutual service, we put ourselves under each other, but we love and we feel a freedom that comes under a constraint. It's so strange. But this is a very important principle to understand that everybody wants freedom. This is why we ask the question, why can't I do whatever I want as long as it's not hurting anybody? What I'm saying is I want freedom to do what I want to do. I want to be free. You do want to be free. What is the greatest way you've ever felt freedom is in a love relationship, which naturally means you have to come under the submission of some kind of constraint. It's so, so interesting. Now, here's what I want to say about that. Freedom, therefore, Freedom cannot be the highest value. It must point somewhere else. It begs for more. 
Freedom cannot be the only or the primary animating ideal of a culture. When you are free, the question is, now that I'm free, what am I free to do? Where does it point? Freedom can't be the highest ideal. It simply can't be because unfettered freedom, if I'm truly free and I don't need to serve you when your house burns down, I don't need to take care of the kids when they need help, I don't need to serve your interests at all, that, if you want to call that freedom, that isn't freedom. Freedom points to something. It says, you are free now. What are you going to choose to serve in your freedom? And who are you going to choose to serve? in your freedom. It points to somewhere else. That must always be the case. The problem is, and and Megan expressed it up here, in our culture, I don't want to dictate to you what you should follow, and you don't want to dictate to me what I should follow. And therefore, we drift around trying to find something to hold on to, afraid of judging one another, and afraid of saying, aha, follow this way, and follow this way, and follow this way. Christians ask the same question, how do I get free? How do I find freedom? But they answer it in a little bit different way. And I just want to step into that space now. Here's how Christians begin to see this world of freedom and hurting one another. I want to go to James, and then I want to invite you, I'm going to invite you right now to turn in your Bible um, to the Gospel of John. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in the pew near you. But John um, chapter 8 is where I'm going to land. It's the fourth book in what we call the New Testament in the right two-thirds of your Bible. Um, But John chapter 8 is where I'm going to go. Before I get there, and once you get there, you can just hang out there for a minute, um, because I want to read to you from James chapter 1. James was a essentially a half-brother of Jesus. And so I think that he knew what was going on in Jesus' world. And James had this to say about this idea of freedom and where it can come from. And if you look up here, you'll see this. Here is what James writes. He said, But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. What James is saying is that there is a perfect law that actually gives freedom. Because he's understanding that every person who wants freedom must come under some kind of law, must come under some kind of constraint, everybody. Whether it's a law or constraint of your own choosing or one that God has put over you, everyone has to come under some kind of constraint in order truly to be free and have freedom point somewhere. And he is saying there is a perfect law that actually gives freedom. So the Christian will say, that what God desires, here's what the Christian says, if you want freedom, bottom line, if you want freedom, when you see God's law as not a list of do's and don'ts that constrain you and keep you down and allow you not to have fun on the weekends while everyone else is having fun, if that's how you see the law, you won't be free, you'll want to reject that. But if you see the law of God differently, as a law coming from the loving hands of a heavenly Father who wants you to be free, you will begin to see, feel, and experience His will and interest for you differently. The best way I know to see that fleshed out is in what's in front of you now in John chapter 8, because Jesus speaks about the same thing. So in John chapter 8, verse 31 is where I want to begin. Jesus is speaking there and he says, or he's not speaking yet, but John is writing, and he says in verse 31, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you, and here's our word, free. Now, the problem with this statement 
is if I'm listening to this, I'm, I'm hearing, Jesus, excuse me, do you think I'm currently not free? Right? I mean, you're making a statement, you're telling me that I'm going to be free, and I'm not really buying that, which is what happens. Verse 33, they answered him, uh, excuse me, uh, we are Abraham's descendants, and we've never been slaves of anyone. <laughs> so how can you say that we shall be set free? In other words, they weren't seeing the constraints that were put on them. They weren't seeing that they were living already under some constraints. They were just thinking, we're living our way, and it is a way of freedom. So you're telling me I can be free. I don't even feel enslaved to anything, so you're not connecting with me right now. We're not slaves to anyone. Jesus knew that wasn't true. Yes, you are. Everybody is. Everybody is. Every single person chooses some constraints to put themselves under everybody, regardless of faith or religion of any kind. And Jesus acknowledges and says, if you want to be free, if you want to be free, if you hold to my teaching, you'll find that. And he, that, so the, the response is, how can you say that we shall be set free? So Jesus replied in verse 34, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. Now, pause it there. What's he saying? I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So in Jesus' mind, this idea of sin, short story, is choosing to go your own way. Choosing to go your way without consent or thought of what God would want. Choosing my way regardless of what God wants and going that direction. And if it's true, listen, if it's true, remember that slide earlier, I had three things to say about hurt. I said, it's hard to define hurt. I said, secondly, I can't tell the future of hurt. And thirdly, we're deeply interdependent on each other. If those things are true, if I am deeply interdependent upon you, and you choose your way, and I choose my way, and my daughter chooses her way, my wife chooses her way, it is only a matter of time until our ways bash into each other. That choosing the way of sin is saying that my way is going to go my way, and I don't really care what you have to say about my way. I'm not going to try to hurt you, but I'm not always going to see how I'm hurting you. Just like in my story and the person I talked to last week who said, when my grandfather committed suicide and then my father, now I'm anxious that I'm going to do this. Like, living with the weight of this pain for so long, we are deeply interdependent people. And so Jesus acknowledges this in this space. Now a slave, he says, there's no permanent place in the family, but a son. If you want to be a son, you'll belong to the family forever. And then he says in verse 36, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Freed from what? Freed from what? And Jesus' freedom is a freedom from sin and death. It is that simple. I love the way Tim Keller writes, and this is in this book, Making Sense of God. I mentioned a couple times that his thoughts have helped me frame up the series. Here's how Keller writes about this. He says, Christianity is the only religion that claims God gave up his freedom so we could experience the ultimate freedom from evil and death itself. Christianity teaches that God gave up his freedom for yours and for mine, to purchase mine and to purchase yours for you. And that in that model... In that model, when Jesus died for me and for you, he freed me and freed you from the slavery of sin and death that I may be free indeed. Now, with all that being said, let me go back to this question. So, why can't I do what I want as long as I'm not hurting anyone else? 
Why can't I do what I want as long as I'm not hurting anyone else? And I guess I would say this. First of all, you can try. And people will. But I would ask the question right behind it, but is it the most reasonable constraint to live under? You can try. But until, for me at least, I will say, it is way too difficult to define hurt. I can't define even what hurt is. I can't predict the future of hurt. And thirdly, our interdependence means that my decisions are going to run into you at some point along the way. It just is the way that we work. And so I have to ask, is it the most reasonable way to live? Christians believe it best to submit to the constraints of the one who loved us first so that we can be free to love. That's what Christians believe about this issue. Why can't I do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anyone? The answer, I would say, is you can. At least you can try. But is it the most reasonable? Christians will say the most reasonable constraint, not just the the most reasonable, forget faith for a minute, just the most reasonable, is if there is a God who has created you, who has given up his freedom to redeem you, is there any constraint that has been given to you that shows more love than that? And if a love relationship is where you experience the most freedom, Is there any better place to find the constraint to come under other than coming under the loving law of God, the law of love that God through Christ has given to us? And so as we were talking in our home this week, you know, how do you talk to people? As we were talking practically, how do you talk to people who would prefer to say, listen, why can't I I act sexually the way I want to act? You know, why can't I have an abortion if I want to? You know, why can't I make this decision with my money or do this with my family or why can't I do whatever I might do? And as we were talking about that, you know, we're saying, well, how how do you respond? Literally, you're sitting across the table having coffee with somebody or you're tweeting or you're connecting DM, the direct message through them or however you're connecting with them. Literally, how do you respond? Just a couple thoughts. One, I would say, (laughs) and I hope this goes without saying, but for the Christian um, love before judgment, please. I mean, my goodness. I, I hope I don't even have to say that, but I'm so reminded in these spaces that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not his judgment. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And secondarily, I would always affirm what I love about the secular worldview, because what I love about the desire to not harm anyone is that desire not to harm anyone. I mean, it's a beautiful desire. I think it's a God-given desire. And so I'd affirm that and say, this is a great thing that you would want not to hurt anybody. And then I just begin the conversation. Can you help me understand how you know when you hurt somebody? How would you define hurt? Help me understand that. And help me know how you would think about the future of your hurt. Do you ever think it's possible that in 10, 15 years when you have kids that the things you do in the weekend on the party in high school might come back to haunt you? Would that be a possibility? Can you track that down? And we just begin to talk about that. Now, I also would say this. Be careful because I'm offering a logical, not an emotional response. (laughs) So sometimes the things I say here are more logical and not necessarily in the proper space in a coffee kind of situation. The appropriate things to say, right? I think we understand that. But underneath it all, I would then also come back to say, listen, I think what you want, what I want is freedom. You want freedom. I do too. But the greatest way that you've ever experienced freedom is in a love relationship with somebody. It is. And who has ever loved you more? And the Christian world believes that. Who has ever loved you more than a loving Heavenly Father who sent His Son to die for you? And if that's true, that's why Christians come under His law. Not because we love to be constrained, but because we love the one who has died for us. And that is where freedom comes from. 
So why can't I do what I want as long as I don't hurt anyone? You can try. But there might also be a better way of submitting to the one who has loved us, that we can be free to bring the right constraints under us, that we can love and love our God and Heavenly Father the way that we are designed to love. Next week, I want to talk in this series about how you can form and I can form an identity that doesn't end up hurting me or hurting you. So if you ever wrestled with identity or know someone who struggles with a concept of their own identity, that's what we're talking about next Sunday. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to be together this morning and to just regather around this idea of freedom and love and constraints and seeing again the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, to give to us a law and a way of seeing this world, really the law of love, the nature of the new covenant relationship we have with you, God, is a, <laughs> marked by love, primarily. All the law and the prophets, you say, hang on the commandments to love God and love our neighbor. And so as we seek to love well, I pray that we'd find freedom in our relationships, true freedom, true freedom, that comes from putting ourselves under the right constraints so that we can experience the love of a heavenly father and that we can love each other in a self-sacrificial way. We thank you that you are a king who saved us, who loved us and bought freedom for us. And so I pray this morning, if there's some listening here who don't know that freedom, aren't sure about that, but are exploring and are interested, uh, I pray that you give us the opportunity to further the conversation, to talk more, about what freedom looks like from the Christian's perspective, what God through Christ has done for us. We thank you for the time that we could share this morning together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.